0: Hey there. My name is Aubrey Henderson. I'm a self-worth coach and professional calm in the chaos. I believe that when you're feeling stuck in your life and you can't decide on the next right step, that getting some perspective or a pep talk from someone outside of your shoes can be an absolute game changer. This podcast is that pep talk. Every week, I'll share my responses to listener questions, real life coaching sessions, and interviews about topics that you can connect with and learn from. All things that will help you to reconnect with your own self-worth and inner goodness and vision for your life so you can feel great and get shit done. Welcome to Ask Aubrey. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, babes. Welcome to this week's episode. So Earlier this week, I had a conversation with um, some friends of mine at a Black History Month event about what it means to be a white ally, so specifically, you know, being a white person who is intentionally working to be anti-racist and to be an ally to people of color, and in this conversation, we're specifically talking about, you know, white people and ways that white folks can show up to be allies um, to black people, and so in this conversation, um, you know, some of the white folks in the room were asking questions about, you know, what are the tangible ways that I can demonstrate that I'm an ally? What are actions that I can take in the world? Where do I start? Um, You know, some questions that came up as they were trying to do that work. And so, you know, it's a conversation I wanted to bring here to the podcast because I know that this is a question that a lot of white folks who are who are working to be anti-racist in kind of their own values and practices in life um, you know once they've taken that kind of initial step of recognizing yes i do have um, and benefit from white privilege um, and you know i want to be able to use that privilege in a way that is responsible and that is supporting people of color there comes a point where a lot of white folks are like okay i don't know tangibly what that means like what does that actually look like in practice. And, you know, coming out of the conversation that I had earlier in the week, I, you know, was able to share some things and some great things were shared in the room um, with the folks who asked these questions. But I, you know, walked away from that conversation, still kind of thinking about it and marinating on it. And so, you know, some of those things, while these folks didn't necessarily submit a question for the podcast or say like, hey, would you talk about this on the podcast? I, you know, think that these these are questions because they kind of came up in my week that I've still been marinating on and so wanted to share with you all. Um, and so one thing I will say kind of before I, I jump in here is that there are a ton of great resources online that help to answer these questions that are really easily Googleable, um, And a lot of these resources are ones where You know, black writers and scholars have kind of put this type of information out there intentionally, have, you know, taken the time to, you know, put these lists and these resources together um, for white folks who want to be anti racist white allies. And so this is something that you can, you know, do some research on on your own. Um, Of course, the reason I'm sharing things here is because I want this to be a resource as well. So, um, but that's all to say, like, this is not the end all be all. There are tons of amazing resources. Um, and I'm going to reference some of those here. Um, but just wanted to name that. That's one of the first things I would say to someone with the the question of like, how do I show up as an ally? What do I do to be an ally? Literally so much information exists already. If you're willing to just like go Google it and to Google what maybe feels like, and I've heard people say like it feels like a silly question to even ask. That's what Google is for. Um, so I think, you know, I think, a thing that people do a lot, and that I hear, um, I hear from a lot of people that it's there's kind of this impulse to just like default to asking a friend of yours who happens to be a person of color to tell you how they would want you to be an ally to them um, because they they feel like you know oh that person can just tell me about what would be helpful to them and in, in their lived experience and I'll just ask them to tell me and like we're friends so it's cool and what i would caution folks with with that and what that thing that logical you know whatever doesn't take into consideration is just how much kind of emotional and mental labor that requires of a person who is a part of a marginalized group who kind of has to live and breathe this experience of like being in their race every single day and so for a white person to kind of demand additional like tell me how to be an ally just like tell me what you want me to do um it's it's a burden that you're putting on people. And that's not to say, like, maybe you have friends who are, like, more than happy to share that with you. And, like, there are folks from all different identities out there who are willing to kind of share ideas and share suggestions and all of that. So if if that's the case, then that's great. But I think I would just caution folks to avoid just defaulting to that and avoid assuming that because your friend is a person of color that they are, like, willing to, you know – be the expert on listing ways that you can be a white ally. Um, there are resources that exist for you to kind of do that research on your own. So that is what I would say with that. Um, and so there are two very distinct questions that came out of this that I kind of, i walked away with that really stuck with me. And so I want to talk about both of those. And the first one that I want to talk about is this general question of how can I be a white ally? What does that look like in practice? What are some tangible concrete things that I can do to demonstrate that I am a white ally? And so obviously there are tons of answers to this question. And this is a question that literally I myself have probably Googled um, in my own kind of journey of working to be an anti-racist white ally. I have done my fair share of like Google searching for things, and I'm pretty sure this is Something that I searched. Um, but if you just literally search how to be a white ally, you will find tons of amazing results. And so, you know, I will talk about one of those right now. So there is this piece that I really like. Um, the author's name is Courtney Ariel. She is a songwriter, storyteller, but she has written this piece called For Our White Friends Desiring to Be Allies. And so, um, you know, in the author's note, she writes, Um, I'm writing this in hopes that it can be used to lighten the load of marginalized folks, keeping in mind that not all marginalized people want to engage in the ally conversation, and that is perfect as well. For those who do, my prayer is that when someone asks you the question, how can I be a stronger ally, you might choose to save your breath slash energy and send this in its place. So I will just say, one, I love that, and like certainly send people this article. I will, um, I guess, link it in the show notes, Um, but this is, it's a great article, so send this. And then I, I mean, I would also say the same thing for anybody who, you know, is a part of a marginalized group, whoever has to have this conversation or answer this question, I want you to feel free to to share this um, with people as well as a resource or something for them to listen to. And, you know, feel free to have them reach out to me if you think that would be helpful. But all that to say, um, this author sort of, sort of speaks on six different kind of headlines of ways for you know white folks to be allies to people of color. And so the first um, the first kind of tip that this author talks about is listening more and talking less. And I feel like you know this is this is what you hear anytime you're it's anytime we want to like connect across difference, you know the suggestion is like, Of course, listen more. Um, But I think this one's really particularly interesting in a conversation around whiteness and white privilege is because it is so not the tendency because whiteness is so centered. And because this idea of of whiteness kind of being the default or the norm is so centered that the idea of decentering whiteness by listening to the story and the experience of a person of color and not feeling a need to like respond or jump in or invalidate it or explain it away is and like you might be listening to this and thinking like of of course like of course I want to listen more and talk less but like notice that it's probably going to be hard to do that and that is because what's happening is our kind of conception of whiteness as as the norm something that goes unchallenged most of the time even just in centering the you know lived experiences and stories and perspectives of people of color we are decentering whiteness and so as a result there is often this urge from white folks to kind of like jump in with commentary or to like explain a scenario where they were like you know extra woke or whatever and so you know there's this there's this impulse to kind of like fill the space with your more of your own voice when that completely defeats the purpose and like shuts down the person that you're listening to and doesn't doesn't give you a sense of like what they're actually experiencing and there's this need to like explain like oh i'm not that i'm not that kind of shitty white person like i'm you know i'm not like that person and kind of separate yourself and so noticing when you're doing that and acknowledging how that actually is like really centering you in the experience if you're jumping in and, and kind of talking and taking up the space in that conversation another one I really like from this list is the author names that being an ally is different than simply wanting to not be racist and so this idea that you know being an ally really requires you to do the work of kind of understanding beyond just like the you know um very like interpersonal overt instances of racism but understanding the systemic and institutional structures of racism that really kind of undergird our society and are are at play all of the time in ways that you know often white folks aren't really even aware of because it's kind of the the you know if we're fish it's like the water we're swimming in it's just what we're used to it's everything around us it's the air we breathe um But educating yourself and becoming more aware of that, right? Whereas, you know, as a person with white privilege, you may have never had to be aware of it, but making yourself aware of it and doing that work. And it's not just that you personally don't want to be interpersonally overtly racist, but it's wanting to understand and dismantle systems of racism at a broader kind of bigger scale. And then, you know, helping to educate others on that as well, helping helping folks to understand that, and whether that's your family members who or friends who may also benefit from white privilege, but may not be, you know, where you're at with in terms of understanding of of these systems and structures that are at play and um, power dynamics that are at play, helping them then along on that journey as well, and helping them to understand and using kind of your identity and your privilege to. You know connect with folks who who share an identity with you and helping them to also understand and then use their power and privilege to do the same so on and so forth um, the next one on the list is uh, the, I read this one and I like cringe a little bit um, because I know that I've, I've said this before um, so this the author says please try not to say quote I can't believe that something like that would happen in this day and age um, so, this is you know, I like I, I know I'm sure this is something that I've said, and probably many times, and you know, I think it is it is one thing to see and be upset by or be appalled by um, instances of, you know, like mentioned before, um, like very overt and blatant acts of racism or violence, um, and to feel like that is upsetting, of course. But there are ways that this this phrasing of like, I can't believe that would happen, oh my god, is there are ways that that is, one, like, diminishing, like, oh, have you been fucking paying attention? Because this shit happens all the time. So there's that piece. And then the other piece is what's happening is like, we're, you know, we're saying these phrases of like, I can't believe that would happen in a way that like, is conveying a message of like, of not believing the lived experiences of like if somebody is telling you that something happened, then saying I can't believe that that happened in a way invalidates that experience and like can have this sort of gaslighting, crazy-making effect where people are like, well, shit, did it? You know, um, this person's saying they can't believe it happened, and so it's you know at at worst it sounds it can sound silly because of of course it of course it happened. Somebody's telling you it happened and. I mean, this is my personal philosophy, but my default is that if somebody's telling me something happened to them, I'm probably going to believe them. And also, there are ways that that can be damaging to somebody who, imagine, you know, somebody is sharing their lived experience over and over and, you know, what they're continually hearing is like, oh, I can't believe that. Oh, I can't believe that that happened. And like, what message does that send about, you know, how people are viewing their lived experience and whether people are viewing them as an expert on their own life and their own... Their own, I mean, lived experience in the world. And so, you know, having that level of being upset or you know, um, being shocked, sure. but knowing that you get to have that that shock and that kind of disbelief factor because you have not had to be as hyper aware of racism in our country, in our society because it has not impacted you in the same way that it has a person of color. Um, another one on this list is something that I, you know, kind of mentioned up front, but this idea of at both asking when you don't know, but being willing to kind of do the work and and educate yourself first. And so, you know, this is, of course, going to be nuanced there. You, you may have people in your life who genuinely are willing to share with you and are willing to you know, open up be open with you about that. Um but being mindful of the fact that if you are constantly asking a person of color in your life to kind of like be the spokesperson for people of their identity, that is fucked up and don't do that. And I can guarantee you if you are looking for the perspective of a person of color or, you know, a black person and their experience of racism in America, there are tons of scholars who have written on this who are black who have written on their own personal lived experience or you know lived experiences of groups of people the information is out there it is readily available to you um if you can you know kind of do the work to seek that out and find it um before you're you know asking a human person to do the emotional labor of educating you um and the last the last one on this list and it's in bold is um stop talking about colorblindness it's not a thing so it's really not and it's at this point like i i and i still hear people say stuff like this and i think depending on the circles you're in and the settings you're in like i feel you know i feel really lucky that i work at an organization that is doing a ton of work around um diversity equity and inclusion and thinking about identity and specifically you know race and educational inequity and The ways that you know those things intersect and so in the settings I'm in day to day this is not a thing that I commonly hear from people but that it is a thing that I hear when I speak to certain members of my family or when I speak to you know folks I grew up with or you know friends of friends and you know this idea of like I don't see color is something that people say and think that they're well-meaning and in fact and I don't think people always realize it when they're saying it which is part of why I'm sharing it here and now is that by saying that what what you're saying one it is it's that it's just not a thing it's not a thing to not be able to see or be aware of somebody's race but it also invalidates the fact that like difference is there and to not acknowledge it is to diminish and devalue it and to you know put a lower worth on someone's real lived experience and say, oh, I just see everybody the same, um, because it denies the fact that people's lived realities are very different. And it makes you sound fucking ignorant. So just don't say that. Um, Don't say it. If you believe it in your heart, That's maybe just don't say it out loud and then do some work to unpack why it, it feels so important to you to make that known. Because I think when people say that, when people say, I don't see color, what they're, what they're trying to say is, I care about humans, and race is not a factor in how much I, I care about people or want you know, people's well-being or whatever. And that is a lovely sentiment, and that can be better expressed in how you, how you demonstrate care and advocacy for people. That is a sentiment that if you believe that in your heart, then it's something that I believe you should show with your actions. And saying it out loud doesn't actually do anything to to affirm that. It makes you appear untrustworthy and also ignorant. So don't use that terminology, y'all. And I think, so, you know, this is it from this list. But, you know, in the conversation that we were talking about, it, it is something that is so nuanced. There are a million ways that you can show up to be an anti-racist white ally, whether that is advocating for, you know, different policies in the school that your kids go to or that you go to or, you know, um, anti-racism in your workplace and how you're advocating for things, how you are, you know, um amplifying the voices of people of color, advocating to have people of color in leadership roles um, in your organization or your company or wherever you work. Um, there are a ton of ways that you can do this. This can be like somebody posts something ignorant on Facebook and you, you know, comment on it and, you know, shed light on whatever it is they're saying and why it's factually inaccurate or why it's problematic or whatever. This can be speaking up at Thanksgiving dinner when you're you know, aunt makes a comment that is rooted in racism. There are a million ways to do this, right? But I think at the core of all of it, and I shared this, you know, with my wife, um, in reflection on this conversation with this group earlier this week, was it starts with kind of self, the self reflection and sitting in the awareness that you have benefited from white privilege and what that means. And I think where a lot of folks get tripped up here is that we, we think about white privilege and that we have white privilege and we, then we feel guilt that we've experienced white privilege and that other people have not, and then we stop there. And stopping there is unproductive, right? It is one thing to feel guilt at the fact that you have benefited from an identity that you did not, you know, you, you did not earn those benefits that you're receiving. Um, there is guilt to be felt about that. And so I think that's okay, as long as you do not stop there. And as long as you move from the feeling of like, oh, I'm going to feel guilty to a place of responsibility, to a place of, oh, I have this privilege and I have this power. So what am I going to do with it? Am I going to sit and kind of marinate in guilt or am I going to then move to action of, okay, I have this power, I have this privilege, and now it is up to me to wield it responsibly. And I think that's really what it, that's the way I think about privilege in general as something that you have to wield. And you can do it in a really clumsy way where you say things like, I don't see color, where, you know, you say things like, oh, like, I ca- man, I can't believe that that would happen in this day and age or, um, you know, oh, I... I totally know what you mean about, you know, um being oppressed because I, you know, had this XYZ experience as a white person. Um it that's how we can wield it in a clumsy way. We have it, we know we have it, but we're not really skillful in how we use it. And then there are ways we can wield it that are really powerful. And those are things like working to dismantle systems of oppression at large and the way those show up in institutions like our workplaces or our schools or, you know, our child welfare institutions or our healthcare system. And so that's, that's largely what I would say is, is kind of, to me, the biggest lever is how you are conceptualizing your privilege and what it means to have it and what your responsibility is to then move forward to action with it. And that kind of leads me into the next question that came up that I also thought was really interesting, which was, you know, I have, like, spoken up um, about racism in the past, this person shared. Like, I've spoken up um, and voiced my kind of anti-racist perspective. And then I have had a person of color tell me, like, to sit down, shut up, or, you know, tell me that they, like, don't want me to be their ally or whatever it was and so like that hurt my feelings and so I like it it you know makes me feel like oh do I you know what do I do with that and so and again that wasn't that person's exact wording but it was kind of like oh I you know um, made an effort to be an ally and then a person responded in a way that was like sit the fuck down and I mean what I would say to that and what I said to this person in the moment is there's another piece of understanding your whiteness and understanding white privilege and having it and what it means that also involves like developing a thicker skin and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable so i'll say that again it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and so like there's a lot of you know when you acknowledge that you have white privilege when you acknowledge that you have benefited from again privileges that you did not earn in any way but that were afforded to you simply because of a part of your identity that you were born with and that someone else was not born with that it feels uncomfortable the guilt feels uncomfortable and you're going to feel it because it makes sense that you'd feel guilty and then the feeling of responsibility that you need to do something differently feels uncomfortable the moments when you need to Kind of relinquish your privilege or, you know, sort of cede your power to someone else feels uncomfortable and feels scary. The moments when you need to speak up, um, you know, to somebody who makes a comment that's problematic, and particularly if that person is also a person who, you know, benefits from white privilege or is a person who's in power or is a person who you're in a relationship with in some way, whether that's significant other or a family or a friendship or an acquaintance or a colleague and you know speaking up might harm that relationship or change that relationship um that's uncomfortable and that's scary but that's also part of the responsibility right it is it's having skin in the game enough to be able to take a risk to advocate for another person or to You know, demonstrate allyship by putting yourself out there. There is some risk that is inherent in that. There is no, to me, there is no white allyship without discomfort. And so that was my kind of immediate response to this person was like, yeah, like when you put yourself out there, and this is slightly different because I think in this example, it was a person of color who was like, look, we don't need you to be our ally. And so in that scenario, I think there's probably some self reflection on, okay, I'm getting feedback from a person of color on how I'm showing up as a white ally. And so like, what does that mean? Is there something I need to like calibrate or do differently? Let me reflect on that. Um, Because if you're, you know, trying to show up to be an ally and a a person in that identity group is telling you like, hey, it's not working for me, then there's, that is data. Um, So that's a different consideration, right? But I think there is this, this work we need to do to kind of develop develop kind of a thicker skin around understanding that we're going to get feedback that's hard and that's again feedback from white folks who are like who feel challenged by what we're saying who disagree who you know don't want to do that self-reflection themselves so we're going to resist at all costs kind of you know what you're saying or how you're challenging them and then that's also about getting feedback from people of color that's being an ally means that you're going to get feedback from Folks who are a part of the group that you would like to be an ally to. And it's important that you hear that feedback, that you hear that feedback and that you don't get defensive. That your response to somebody saying, like, hey, the way you said this, like, I just, you know, wanted to share, like, had some thoughts about it, that your response isn't like, but I'm here to help you. Like, shouldn't you be thankful that I'm here to help you? And like, even saying that out loud makes me cringe. You might be cringing listening to that. But that is, that is kind of some white folks' natural response because the feeling is like, well, I've put myself out there and now you're like shutting me down when really you've put yourself out there and you're getting valuable feedback. So thinking about it in that way, right? And, you know, just being able to, to recognize that like you as a white person will survive feeling uncomfortable. You as a white person have this level of privilege And what you're doing by being a white ally, and of course the stakes are different depending on the situation, but like telling your aunt that some shit that she said at the dinner table was racist is probably not going to be a destructive force in your life, keyword probably. I, I don't know your aunt and I don't necessarily know you that well, but the difference is that what's at stake if white folks are not allies and if white folks sit back and do nothing and just say, oh, I'm upset that systemic racism exists, but I'm not willing to risk enough to do something about it or to work towards, you know, a better future or to advocate on behalf of people that I care about or people that I don't even know, but that I believe deserve justice. What's at stake there is much higher than what's at stake if you Piss somebody off because you challenge some shit that they said, and so that's pretty much what I shared with that person. But this is a, you know, my my longer, um, you know, more more narrative and more of my stream of consciousness. But this is all to say that this is an ongoing ongoing process. This is something that. The thing about being, you know, an ally of any kind and, you know, about being an anti-racist white ally in particular is that this work is never going to be done. There's not like a level that you achieve that you're like, oh, I'm there. I am officially an anti-racist white person. But that it's work that you're continually doing. It's self-reflection that you're continually doing. It's kind of deprogramming the, the ways that, you know, whiteness and white supremacy culture have seeped into us over time and that we've kind of been indoctrinated into this right it's it's undoing that intentionally and it's noticing when kind of bias or when that like defensiveness creeps up for us and it's being willing to take a risk and say something that feels uncomfortable or scary it's willing to say maybe the wrong thing and then hear feedback and be thankful for feedback and do better next time and that work never ever ends and so you know what i would say to both of these folks is that there's you know a lifelong journey that you're sort of committing to here right this is something that you know goes beyond just oh i'll go to like an anti-racism training and then i'll officially be an ally or this makes me laugh because I went to, there's many layers to why this makes me laugh. But when I was in college, I went to a number of like LGBT ally trainings, which like, so I'm not, I I, I would say I'm an ally to trans people, but like I'm, I'm queer. So I, you know, I'm in the community, I'm under the umbrella. Um, so me going to an ally training is kind of funny in and of itself. But at the end of a lot of trainings like that, you like get this button or this, you know um kind of sheet of paper certificate to like go on your office door that's like I'm an ally I'm officially an ally and like there is a ton of utility to that right it shows especially when you're in like a college setting or any setting where somebody can walk by your door and see a visual marker that you're a safe person for them like there's a ton of value to that so I'm not trying to like shit on that but you know what that kind of implies is like oh certificate of completion you're officially an ally and that's not a thing it is work that you're going to be doing forever so all that is to say i am a person who is on this journey myself just like anybody else So i'm talking about this here not as like you know some kind of scholarly expert on this topic but as somebody who is living it myself and who you know hopefully can share something of utility with you if this is you know work that you're invested in doing as well and so you know i hope that um some of this content had value for you today and you know if you have more questions about this please feel free to you know reach out um you can email me hello at aubreyhenderson.com you can send me um a message on instagram or on facebook um but would love to chat more about this if you ever have questions have you know something you just need to process i am happy to be that sounding board for you Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you loved it, please take a second to subscribe on your favorite platform, leave a rating or a review and take a screenshot and share it on social media or with a friend who needs to hear a message like this one. I love the chance to hear from you and connect with you because it gives me the opportunity to remind you that you are worthy, worthy of wholeness and happiness and just good things. So send me the question or the topic that's keeping you up at night or that you just want to hear more about. You can send me a voice memo at anchor.fm slash Aubrey Henderson. And I can actually include any voice memos that you send me in the show, which I think is pretty rad. Or you can send a good old fashioned written message from my website at aubreyhenderson.com. I'll see you next time, babes.